the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, David's music gives Saul some solace, but his heart is still troubled as Israel faces the Philistines again, and this time they bring their hero, Goliath. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 1. Once again, that's 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. Well, we saw last week that God had completely rejected Saul's leadership, and he sent Samuel to anoint David to be his replacement. But Saul has no intention of abdicating the throne. There's not going to be this, oh, okay, God's done with me being a leader, so I'll step down. And that leaves Israel in kind of a, a spiritual lame duck situation. He's still king. But it's not the king that God wants. And so this not only leaves the nation of Israel in a kind of a lame situation, but it leaves Saul in a bad situation. Because leading a nation is not easy. And doing it on your own only makes it harder. So facing these challenges on his own leaves Saul with a deeply troubled heart. And we're going to look at that and hopefully we can see how we can avoid that in our own lives. So chapter 16, verse 14. It says, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said unto him, behold now, an evil spirit from God troubles you. Let our Lord now command your servants, which are before you, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp. And it shall come to pass, when the evil spirit from God is upon you, that he shall play with his hand, and you shall be well. And Saul said unto his servants, provide me now a man that can play well, and bring him to me. And Saul's servant says unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubles you. Let our Lord now command your servants, which are before you, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on the harp. And it shall come to pass, when the evil spirit from God's upon you, he shall play with his hand, and you shall be well. Saul says unto his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well, and bring him to me. In verse 18, it says, Then answered one of his servants, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite that is cunning in playing. He's a mighty, valiant man, a man of war, prudent in matters, and a comely person. And the Lord is with him. And so, verse 19, Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse and said, Send me David your son, which is with the sheep. And so Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a bottle of wine and a kid, a goat, and sent them by David his son, unto Saul. And so David came to Saul and stood before him, and he, Saul, loved him, David, greatly. And he, David, became his armor bearer. 
So verse 22, Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David, I pray you, stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And it came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took a harp and played with his hand. And so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. So the question is, if God's not with Saul anymore, why does the demon leave when David plays the harp? Well, well, music can be soothing. I think it has less to do with music and a lot more to do with the Lord being with David. Because that's what Saul was missing, was the Lord's presence. That's what was gone. Now, before we move on to chapter 17, because Saul's not out of the woods yet, he's going to find some new troubles in chapter 17. Before we move on to chapter 17, we do need to talk about David and all this. Because we don't see any of his perspective in this situation. However, even though we don't get his perspective, we already know that he knows he's Saul's replacement, right? We already know that he knows that. I'll be honest with you. If one of Saul's royal officials came snooping around my home looking for volunteers, I'd be going in the other direction. Because I would know that if Saul finds out who I am and what Samuel's anointed me to be, he's going to kill me. I mean, he's not left the throne. He's not cool with this whole change. You know, it's not like I could show up and be like, hey, buddy, I'm your replacement, you know, like two days ago. But you're kind of haven't moved yet. So, you know, hope we can get along for a little bit there. That's not how I'd be thinking this thing through. And yet David goes and he serves this tormented man. There are some things that David does and you're just like, what are you doing, David? And I don't relate at all. And then there are other things that he does that I I don't relate at all. And that's not a good thing. David later on comes to love Saul deeply. I don't think I'm there yet. I need to get there. But that blows me away. You know, if Saul has a troubled heart, I would describe David as a man who had a simple heart. A very, very simple heart. In Acts 2.46, it talks about the early church and why they had such an impact upon the community around them. And in Acts 2.46, it talks about a lot of things. But one of the things it mentions about them that has always kind of interested me, it says, and they continually daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their food with gladness. And King James says singleness of heart, but it means simplicity of heart. They had simple hearts. It wasn't complicated. And Paul said the same thing in Galatians chapter 2, one of my favorite sections of scripture. I I return to this scripture so often. But he says, listen, for I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But this is the part that I always think is interesting. I do not frustrate the grace of God. It's like Paul saying, this is not rocket science, all right? That's kind of what he's saying there. This is not complicated, all right? The Christianity is not complicated. It's not complex. Love Jesus, trust Jesus, follow Jesus. That's it. (laughs) It's not complicated. If he says it, do it. What he did for you, accept it. He says, I'll be with you, trust him. It's not complex. Very rarely do I ever find myself in an intellectual crisis spiritually. It's always, it's always an obedience crisis. It's always a faith crisis. It's not complicated. God says do this and I don't want to. 
Or God says, trust me and I don't want to. God says, I love you. And I go, I don't believe it. It's not complicated. And sometimes, because we make it complicated, the Lord just has to pull us aside and just remind us how simple it is. Because when we love Jesus, we trust Jesus, we follow Jesus, it leads to loving others and obeying God. Even when it puts you in the lion's den, where David's going. Even when it puts you in the lion's den, you're like, okay, all right, Lord. This will be interesting, but here we go. Now, as I said earlier, Saul's torment may have been eased by David, but this is not a permanent fix. There are still problems facing him, and the Lord is not with him. So in chapter 17, now we see another problem arise. It says, now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, and they were gathered together at Shoko, which belongs to Judah, and they pitched between Shoko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Now, when Israel last fought the Philistines, if you remember, it was Saul's foolish oath that he told nobody they could eat anything until they'd killed every last Philistine. And that allowed the Philistines to escape. That allowed them to get away, even though Israel had them. And so while Saul was securing his kingdom, his borders, the Philistines had rebuilt their army, and now they finally got into a place where they said, it's time for us to regain the upper hand. And so they invade, and it says they gathered together Shoko. Shoko is a hill about 15 miles west of Bethlehem, and this Israeli city of Shoko is right on the border of Philistine and Israeli land. So they have entered Israeli territory with this army, and after they take this city, this Israeli city, they pitch between that city, which is Shoko's on a, a hill, and then Azekah, which is a, another hill. When we were in the uh, Valley of Elah, we point out those hills, and, you know, and that's Azekah, and that's this. That's where the Philistine army was, and this is where David and Goliath fought. It's really cool. It's so neat. Um, there's a, a stream that's not a stream anymore, but there's a, a brook that runs right through the Valley of Elah, and it's just got these rocks everywhere. I brought a bag of them, and I, I actually keep them in my office anytime someone's facing a giant, and I, I give it to them. I say, that's, that's a reminder that God's going to take care of your giant, just like he took care of Saul's and David's. But I love it. You know, I brought a bunch of them. I, first time I went, I took some for me. And the second time I went, I thought, I should get some for others. And uh, this valley in Israel, it's, it's the perfect battlefield. And so Saul, verse 2, and his men of Israel, they were gathered together and they pitched by the valley of Elah, the one I mentioned to you. And they set the battle in array against the Philistines. In other words, they arranged their soldiers in a line. So you got the Philistines in a line in this one valley in the distance, and then the Israelites in a line in the valley of Elah, and they're ready to face off against each other. Very similar if you've ever seen battles like from the Revolutionary War in film or, or even the Civil War where they line up and fight. That's how this battle is going to take place. It's not going to be, this is not guerrilla warfare. This is not a bunch of troops chaotically running around. This is one line going to go hit another line, and we're going to find out who wins. And obviously, in, in a situation like that, there's a lot of death. The death toll is high. Verse 3, And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the other, one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. Israel and the Philistines have been in this situation numerous times over the decades of their conflicts. And the outcome, interestingly enough, as we know, always had to do with whether God was with Israel or God was not with Israel, right? If he was with them, they won. If he was not with them, they lost. So this time, the Philistines, they decide to bring out their own unique weapon to turn the tide in their favor. Verse 4, it says, And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath. That's where he's from, one of these five Philistine royal cities. And then it tells us a little bit about this guy named Goliath. 
It says, whose height was six cubits and a span, which is six and a half cubits, which is just under 10 feet tall. And the word for champion, it means a man in the middle. That's what the, literally the word translates to, man in the middle. Someone who fills the gap alone between two armies. This would be the guy, if you needed to hold the line for a bit to get your men out, this is the guy you sent up to hold the line because he was one who could take on more than one man. Well, how is he so? Well, we see here, he is just under 10 feet tall. It mentions in verse 5 that he had a helmet of brass upon his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of that coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. That's 140 pounds. I can't even imagine, I can't lift 140 pounds. I couldn't imagine fighting with 140 pounds of armor on top of me. But the idea that's being conveyed with the poundage is not just simply to show how strong he was, but it's to show you, you're not getting a hit in on this guy. You're not just getting through the armor. This is some thick stuff. This is a man who can carry that type of thick material around. It goes on to tell us even more. It says in verse 6 that he had greaves of brass upon his legs, so you can't sweep the leg. It says he had a target of brass between his shoulders. A target means a javelin or a spear. So that's his weapon of choice is going to be a weapon that has quite a bit of reach. And it mentions about the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. A weaver's beam was a loom, you know, the, the massive loom they would use to go back and forth to weave things together. Most spears were slender, a normal spear shaft, but this is far wider and far thicker than a normal spear shaft. And then it tells us about the spear head, that the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's about 12 to 15 pounds. And not only that, but he's got a shield bearer coming out before him, you know, carrying his shield. He's going to have a shield too. So he's got this massive shield. It's not one of these little bucklers. He's got a big, huge shield. He's got armor everywhere that's impenetrable, a helmet on his head. The only place that's available is probably his face. And then he's got this spear that's massive. And if you get hit with this thing, you're not getting up. So how are you going to face a man who's got that type of superior reach, superior strength? And if he hits you, you're done for. This isn't just an elite soldier. This is a complete force of nature. This is a massively strong human being with superior reach and skill to any Israeli that he would face. Now, there's always soldiers who are better than others, more skilled than others, maybe more better equipped than others. And any single soldier can be overwhelmed in open battle. But that's not how the Philistines planned to employ Goliath. Look at verse 8. And he, Goliath, stood and cried unto the armies of Israel, and he said unto them, Why are you come out to set your battle in array? Uh, the, the phrase there, why, is actually two words, and it, it means like it's to what, which, which has the idea for what purpose or to what end. In other words, if we just line up and fight each other, a ton of people are going to die. I propose an alternate plan to solve our conflict. He says, Am I not a Philistine, and aren't you not servants to Saul? Choose you out a man for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So his thought is, we'll just settle this in single combat. If I win, you serve us. If he wins, we'll serve you. Now, single combat challenges were not uncommon in warfare, but single combat never determined the outcome of a battle in ancient history. You won't find any records of that. And even when those stipulations were set up, oh, this will decide the battle, the two armies ended up fighting anyway, just like they will here. 
So what does this serve then? Since everybody knows this is a farce, everybody knows that this is not how it's going to go down. What purpose does it serve? Well, it serves this. Normally, you have your two greatest champions going at it. And losing your champion is a serious blow to morale. Very often, the army that wins a fight is is not necessarily the army that may even be the better army, but it's the army that can just hold the line. And so if an army's morale is bad and they begin to break, they begin to lose their cohesion, even if they're better equipped, even if they have superior training, they're going to get cut down. And so this is a ruse meant to give the Philistines that kind of an advantage because what Israeli soldier is going to be able to defeat the Goliath in single combat? None. And so knowing this, Goliath closes his challenge by taunting Israel's army in verse 10. He says, and the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. The word there, defy, means to ridicule, insult. I mock you. I insult you. I mean, I don't know if he said that or if he actually said something insulting or mocking. But either way, he's insulting them, mocking them. Where's your champion? Come and fight me. And it says in verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul's troubled again, right? Troubled again. He's afraid again. But now added to this is dismay, which means great discouragement. Why would he be greatly discouraged? Well, a challenge like this in, to Middle Eastern honor demands you answer the insult, demands you answer the challenge. But Saul knows there's no way sending someone out there against this guy is going to end well. There's no way he's going out there. He may be the champion. He might be the king, but he's not going out there because he knows the Lord's not with him. And he knows that's the only way somebody's going to beat this guy. And so he knows there's no way it can end well. And so he's thinking, what am I going to do now? If I delay too long, my own people might turn against me because they'll call me a coward. Say I have no honor. And if I go out there, I'm a dead man. And that's what happens when you decide to go on your own like Saul did. The truth is, we might look at what the Lord says, and we might be like, no, 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 no. I'm going to do this, and I can handle this. And frequently when we make that decision, it's because we think, well, I, I have a handle on this. Whatever the area of disobedience might be, it's because we think, well, no, no, I won't go the route that this can lead you to. I won't let this compromise take me down a further road. I won't let that happen. I will control the situation. I will ensure that I'll be safe. I'll, I'll make sure I don't make really bad decisions. And that way I can have what I want. And yet I won't experience the consequences that God warns me about. And so the problem is, is that when we do that, maybe we might have some control of that situation, but eventually we will end up in a situation where we're in over our head, like Saul is here. Now, Walking with the Lord, we need to understand this. I mean, I know you guys know this, but walking with the Lord doesn't mean we won't have battles. In fact, walking with the Lord doesn't mean we won't find ourselves in situations where we're in over our head. Walking with the Lord doesn't mean there'll be no Goliaths. But what walking with the Lord does mean is that we don't have to face those things on our own. That's the difference. And the truth is, God is bigger than any giant the enemy can throw our way. Amen? So, Saul's challenge is he doesn't have that. And when I'm walking my own path like this in disobedience, I don't have the Lord to fight those battles. 
And facing those situations on my own is always going to leave me with a troubled heart. It's always going to do that. Now, we're not meant to live like that, right? I mean, is any of us equipped to live in a life where we're constantly fearful, constantly troubled, constantly worried? Is any of us meant to live like that? No, we're not designed that way. Our makeup, our soul is not designed to operate that way. It takes a toll. And so if we refuse to repent and we stay in that place, it will eventually destroy us. So my encouragement to you as we wrap this up with, I want to go back to Psalm 37. My encouragement is let's not do that. Let's do what Psalm 37 says instead. So let's turn there and we'll close with Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is something I often read to people who are struggling because there's some very important truths here that we need to know. So just kind of let the words minister to you. I don't know what you might be going through. Maybe you're facing a Goliath. Maybe you need a stone. But Psalm 37, verse 1, says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the, the green herb. Doesn't that sound like a better way to approach it? Yeah, you know, I mean, Saul was fretting because of an evildoer, Goliath, right? And he was envious. I mean, I'm sure that Saul's thinking, I wish I had what that guy had. I wish I was as tall as he was. I wish I had the reach that guy had. I wish I had, I had the strength to wear that armor and to hold that spear. And I, I, then I could take him. But instead, the Lord says, no, don't, don't look at it that way. Instead, do this. Verse three, trust in the Lord and do good. So shall you dwell in the land and truly you will be fed. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. What does Saul really want? I mean, what did he want above all else? He didn't want to have to worry anymore. He didn't want anything to threaten the life that he had. God offered all of that. He offered him, they said, you know, Saul, I'll be with you. You know, he anointed him. He had led him into battle. The Lord had said, you know, Saul, I'll help you. Samuel had been by his side. Just trust me. Just obey me. Just do things my way. And I'll take care of all this. But instead of trusting in that, he didn't commit his way unto the Lord. He didn't do what verse 5 says. Commit your way, the path you're going to take. He said, I'm going to take a different path. I'm going to go my own path. No, the Lord says, commit your way unto the Lord. Trust also in him with that path. And he shall bring it to pass. Saul said, no, I'm going to bring it to pass on my own. Don't do that. Do this. Trust him to bring it to pass. Because then verse 6 says, he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Don't fret yourself because of him who prospers in his way. All those men were deserting Saul left and right while he's waiting for Samuel to come to the sacrifice He says, don't fret because of that. These guys, they they might be bailing on you. Don't fret. Rest. How can I rest? We're down to 600 men and the whole Philistine army's coming for me. Rest. You've got me on your side. You've got all the angels of heaven on your side. You don't even need three men, let alone 600 men. Rest. Don't fret yourself because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Don't fret yourself in any way to do evil because evildoers will be cut off. Those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. And for yet a little while, just a little while, 
We live so often, uh, maybe you don't, I do, in the now. Now is bad. Now something must be done. He says, yeah, just a little while. Now is just a little while. For yet a little while and the wicked won't even be. Yeah, you shall diligently consider, search, look for his place. It shall not be. But the meek, meek, it means submitted strength, strength that isn't brought to bear. It means you could do something, but you don't. The meek shall inherit the earth. And here it is, the opposite of a troubled heart. And shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Well, there's a lot of things there in Psalm 37, a lot of things you tell us to do, but we, we look at that ending, that result where you say, that we'll experience the abundance of peace. That is the opposite of what Saul was experiencing. So we don't want a troubled heart. We want a, a simple heart like David, a heart that's able to experience this peace as we don't fret, as we rest in you, commit our way to you, trust in you. And so Lord, as, as my brothers and sisters might be out there right now, some of them saying, I'm gonna do that, Lord. I'm gonna trust you or I'm gonna cease from anger. I'm gonna stop fretting. I'm gonna rest in you. I commit this path that you want me to go down. I commit it to you. I'm going to go your way, Lord. As my brothers and sisters are doing that, would you flood them with your peace? Would you fill them with your spirit? Remind them that you're good and give them rest. We love you and we thank you that you're good and your mercy endures forever. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours. Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.